Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ian Steffi. There's silence for another 10 minutes and he goes, look, just, um, just don't have sex too young because you'll get bored with it later. that and more but before that oh my god i am so excited to finally announce our patreon page folks as you know this process of running this show it's always something where we're kind of going by the skin of our pants it's a huge operation we have three full-time employees we have 20 part-time employees and we have never stopped worrying about whether or not we could keep it all going you know, the 50 or so live shows a year, the once a week podcast, the workshops we're doing all over the place, including in marginalized communities like prisons. We worry about keeping it all going and expanding. We want to create another podcast. We want to put out bonus episodes and we want to give away these ridiculous gifts like personalized stamps.com songs and chances to hang out with me and uh, other members of the staff in person or over Skype and shout outs on the podcast, all that good stuff. So listen, our Patreon page is at patreon.com slash risk. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash risk risk you get the prizes in exchange for supporting the show with a monthly donation you can donate anywhere from a dollar a month to a hundred dollars a month when we hit our first goal which is to be making a thousand dollars a month i'll do a, a special unplugged i'll make a video of myself doing an unplugged acoustic kind of lovely version with a pianist of the stamps.com <laughs> song so listen, this really does mean everything to us to have the support from our fans. And we finally have the setup 
so that that's easy to do. It's patreon.com slash risk. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash risk. Go there. There's a video of me explaining the history of the show and so on and so forth. It's a wonderful way to become a part of it all. And one last thing, one great resolution you can make for the new year, maximize every minute and every dollar for your small business. The easy way to do that is, of course, stamps.com. Think about how much time you've probably wasted at this point in your life, going to the post office, driving there, finding parking. Stamps.com is a better way to get postage. You use what you already have, your computer and printer, to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mailman picks it up. With Stamps.com, everything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk at a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. We use Stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. It's so convenient. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use our code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is lemon jelly behind me now and we are calling this week's episode the way home these are three stories from people who found themselves at a turning point in their life where they had to assess where they had come from and where they had been and whether they still fit in or belonged to the people and place that they came from. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from a truly extraordinary man, Dario De Batista. Dario is a veteran of the Iraq War, but he's also the editor of this remarkable book called Retire the Colors. This is vets and family members and friends sharing about the experiences around Iraq and Afghanistan. I am really in awe of the work that Dario and a lot of other good folks have done with the Veterans Writing Project at veteranswriting.org, collecting these extraordinary stories that are so crucial to share and to be heard. And I'll say more about all that after we hear Dario's story. But before that, we're going to hear a story that was told at our Brooklyn show at the Bell House by Hallie Bullet. Holy cow, I think a lot of people are, are going to be able to relate to this one. A story about intolerance, racism, that sort of thing in the family. 
one more good reason to be marching this week, right? <laughs> Don't forget the Women's March is on the 21st. That's in D.C., but there's a lot of local marching going on on various days these days, too. So check that out. Anyway, <laughs> Hallie Bullitt is a super talented actress, singer, songwriter. She's been in various Broadway shows. She's also a regular on The Chris Gethard Show on Fusion, which is mo- one of the most wonderfully ridiculous TV shows ever. Here she is now at the Bell House at the regular wrist show that we do there once a month with a story we call Face to Face. Picture me on stage at the Kansas City Music Hall in Kansas City, Missouri. It is one of the biggest and most stunning theaters I have ever performed in. It's really bright on stage, and there's a sold-out crowd of well over 2,000 people in the audience, so I can't see exactly where my 81-year-old grandmother is sitting, but I know she's out there. It's the end of Act One, and from a performance standpoint, it's been a great show so far. My fellow cast members and I are seated at a long table in the center of the stage, and at the correct cue, I stand up on my metal folding chair, as my character is supposed to do, I turn my back to the audience, and I unzip my pants. Just before pulling them down, I look down at my cast, who are gazing up at me with amused smirks, and I whisper under my breath, well... This one's for my granny. (laughs) My granny lived in Missouri, or Missouri, as she always said. She was an opinionated, gregarious, rootin' tootin' kind of a gal. (laughs) Like, if you ran an errand with her, you had to allot an extra 20 minutes just for her to talk to strangers. She talked to everyone everywhere she went. And because she had made a lifelong habit of this, She had all kinds of friends from one end of Kansas City to the other. And when I visited, she wanted to introduce all of them to her glamour puss granddaughter from New York. (laughs) At home, I was Hallie. I was a shy kid. I did ballet. My report cards observed that I didn't really play with my classmates. (laughs) But when I was with my grandmother, I was Hallie Bracken. She always called me by my first and middle names. And together, we spoke our minds and ate ice cream for breakfast if we wanted, and we spoke to strangers on the street, and we made friends with people from all different walks of life. My visits with her were transformative, magical. Well, at least they were always transformative. (laughs) There was a summer that we were visiting her when I was in college, and we'd gone out to do some sightseeing thing without her. And when we returned, we found my grandmother, And on the table next to her were two copies of the book, How to Make the World a Better Place for Gays and Lesbians. I smelled a rat. I knew it wasn't good, but you know, I had to ask her. I just had to ask her what she was doing with those books. And she told me that she had found them in the bookstore in town and that she had bought up both copies because she didn't want anyone else to pick up that filth and read it. I said, Granny, you can't do that. It's a free country. People can read those books if they want. And she told me, 
yes, Hallie Bracken, you're right, it is a free country, and if I want to buy those books and flush them down my toilet, I'm entirely free to do so. Ooh, we got into it that day, you guys. (laughs) And I wondered later if she regretted having emboldened her once shy granddaughter to be such an outspoken young woman. (laughs) But this is the side of my grandmother that I hadn't yet picked up on when I was that little girl that idolized her. Yeah, you know, in the street, she would talk to anybody as if they were her equal, but behind closed doors, she made it clear she thought lots of people were not her equal. Gays, blacks, Jews, what else? I don't, overweight people, the nouveau riche, uh, Roman Catholics. She called Roman Catholics mackerel snappers. I will say that again, mackerel snappers. Because apparently the Catholics that she knew ate fish on Fridays. I don't, it was beyond. And before I was old enough to pick up on all her offhanded discriminatory remarks, I had seen my grandma as having so much love in her heart. I saw her as like, do you remember like the Care Bears had like those hearts that just like shined bright colors out into the world? But as I grew older, I had to accept that in a lot of ways, my grandma was more like the Grinch with like this shriveled up little heart that didn't have compassion for people that were different from her. It was so sad when, at 11, I realized I couldn't tell her about the black boy I had a crush on at school. It was devastating when, as an agnostic little 12-year-old, I got bullied into being confirmed because she basically told me she would disown me if I wasn't a Christian. And it was downright terrifying when, at 23, I got hired to do the national tour of the Broadway musical Rent. (laughs) Rent was my first professional gig, you guys. Literally one week, I was a starving artist in the East Village, and the next week, I was in a rehearsal with Neil Patrick Harris, being paid to pretend that I was a starving artist in the East Village. (laughs) It was so surreal. (laughs) And, you know, as I learned the show, I also learned a lot about the show's writer, Jonathan Larson, who had tragically died before the show had become like this worldwide phenomenon. And I really grew to respect what he had wanted to do, which was to transform the world of the musical theater by writing a show about the people you didn't normally see musicals about. Gays, bisexuals, lesbians, drug users, drag queens, punks, anarchists, people living with HIV. And while I didn't particularly find show about those things to be that edgy, the thing about performing it on tour was we went to cities where the ideas in that show were truly radical. I mean, like on our opening night in Pittsburgh, about 20 people just got up and walked out. It was like, really? You spent $100 on your ticket, but you didn't want to read one sentence about what the show was about. Okay. So my grandmother hears that I'm coming through town with this Broadway tour and that I'm going to be at this renowned theater in Kansas City, and she's like ecstatic. So imagine how heartbreaking it was for me to tell her that she shouldn't come. I told her that the show was really progressive, it was filled with ideas that she was going to find offensive, and that I just couldn't bear for her to come and hate it or be angry with me. Luckily, Because she was so old, she really needed somebody to accompany her to the theater, and no one would do it. Nobody. My aunts, my uncles. Shockingly, nobody wanted to bring the conservative homophobe to a production of Rent. (laughs) 
my God, though, she was so persistent. She finally just wore down this poor cousin of ours who agreed to pick her up at her assisted living facility and drive her to the Kansas City Music Hall. That day that my grandmother was coming to the show, I was having a full-blown panic attack. I had this one thing that I clung to for solace, and that was that my role in the ensemble wasn't that risque. So while my grandmother would likely storm out of the theater in disgust, it probably wouldn't be from anything I specifically had done on stage. But when I got to the theater that day, my stage manager told me that there was another cast member out sick and I was going to have to go on in her role, which I understudied. And that role was Maureen. If you don't know Rent, and some of you clearly do, Maureen is the wild, motorcycle-riding, lesbian performance artist. (laughs) You know, I told my stage manager, oh, no, 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 I'm so sorry, I can't play Maureen today because my Bible-thumping, gay-bashing grandmother is coming to the show. And he told me that we had too many people out sick and that if I didn't go on as Maureen that day, we would have no show. Act one. I perform Maureen's infamous performance art piece, which involves my like having to squat down on stage and pretend to slurp milk from like a giant imaginary cow udder. I also kiss not one but two women on the lips, two gorgeous actresses, one of whom is black. And in the big show-stopping number, La Vie Boheme, I climb up on my little metal folding chair and I moon the audience with my bare ass. (laughs) And that is only act one. Act two, I parade around the stage in like a dominatrix-style vinyl cat suit with knee-high platform boots. I continue to make out with the woman that plays my girlfriend multiple times for extended periods of time. I pantomime having sex with her in this truly bizarre, like, choreographed dance orgy number that includes the line, steamy, creamy, Stroking, soaking, like these are the lyrics. Like, no grandmother wants to hear this, let alone my grandmother. And the whole time I'm like compulsively scanning the audience. I'm just trying to see, like, does she look hurt or furious or shocked? And all I see is just lights and so many people. I never do find her, not for the three long hours that I am on stage. When I walk out the stage door, Maureen's a real crowd favorite, so there's like at least a dozen adorable teenage girls that are all waiting for my autograph. And I'm I'm trying to be polite, but I'm still desperately searching for my grandma, who I'm not sure has even stayed for the duration of the performance. (laughs) But then I see her across the street with my cousin, and she looks so little. And I suddenly can't remember when she got so old and fragile. As soon as I'm able to, I make my way across the street to her. My heart is pounding, and she's crying. But also, she's smiling. She's hugging me. She tells me how much she loved the show. I make discreet, bewildered eye contact with my cousin, who looks equally mystified, and then back to my grandmother, who tells me, I was just beautiful in the show. I was the best one. My mind is racing to come up with an explanation for this. I'm like, has one production of Rent just entirely changed her worldview? Like, that's not possible, right? 
And then she says something that makes it a little more clear. She tells me that her second favorite character was that incredibly talented young woman in the high heels and the Santa dress. Holy shit, you guys, if you don't know Rent, that is Angel. That is the drag queen. That talented young woman was my friend Wilson. (laughs) He was amazing, by the way. I don't know, it's like we have two possibilities here, right? One is just that the whole thing went over her head. She had lost some of her hearing, the show was very busy and chaotic, and it was about concepts that were really foreign to her. But I don't know. It's not possible that she just didn't notice me standing center stage with another woman's tongue in my mouth. It's not possible. So there's this other option, you know, which is that maybe that afternoon she was able to accept that I was really, really different from her. And she was still able to be really, really proud of me. I like to think it's that one. But I'll never really know for sure. That day outside the theater was the last time that I saw her alive. I guess just none of it really matters. I'm just so grateful that for whatever reason, we didn't fight that day. I called my mom last week because I just wanted to get her take on all of this. So, you know, I still grapple with it. And my, my mom was telling me about all these dear African-American friends that my grandma had, like people that she truly treated like family, all the while calling the Civil War the War of Northern Aggression and collecting memorabilia from the Confederacy. I mean, it makes my mind want to melt, the incongruity of it, you know? But I also, I hold on to it as evidence, you know, that while she could talk about disliking all these different groups of people, when confronted with, like, real people in front of her face, my grandma fucking loved people. I don't know, this day that she came to rent is, like, another really important piece of that evidence to me. Like, evidence that my grandma's real heart was her Care Bear heart, and that her little Grinch heart was more like this theory rarely put into practice. It's like super hard to talk about this on stage because I'm so afraid you're gonna hate my grandma. (laughs) Especially right now when I know that so many of us are feeling that diversity and acceptance are under attack. And I don't know if you've ever tried to love somebody this complicated or fought to accept someone whose views you just deeply disagreed with. If you haven't experienced that, I just want to ask you to still just try to understand my grandma. And like, if you go home tonight and she pops into your head, try to show her a little forgiveness, a little bit of kindness. Because I don't know for sure, but I feel, I feel that if my grandmother had met every single person here, no matter what you look like or how you choose to live or who you choose to love, if she had met you face to face, I think my grandma would have loved you. Thank you.
I joined the Marines in peacetime. I graduated boot camp on August 24th, 2001. If I'm being honest with you, I probably would have not joined the Marines after September 11th, 2001. Because uh, the Marines are a warfighting force. They pride themselves as being one of the baddest branches of the military. And when you're in the Marines, they will put you in the front lines and you'll be in the dangerous areas. And that's your expectation. <laughs> getting ready to train, uh, one of our staff sergeants asked, uh, who is afraid? And of course, nobody raised their hand. I uh, said, who's not afraid? And of course, nobody raised their hand. He's like, good. You're supposed to be scared. If you're not scared, you're a crazy motherfucker, and I don't want you coming with me. A lot of times, people ask if I've ever killed anybody, which is... It's an egregious question to ask somebody. Why would you, why would you do that? <laughs> if I did kill somebody, do you think I want to talk about it? Uh, if I didn't kill anybody, my experience is not worth anything. All of a sudden, um, yeah, just it's this weird, gross oversimplification of what we do and and how we did it and what the job was. Uh, it's about nation building, it's about stability, it's about creating peace and security and a functioning government for people, not just going around shooting people. You know, there's a boredom to war. You can be in a house going room to room, tense combat that feels like hours, but it's only about 10 minutes. And then you might sit around for four hours, literally. It's the manic bipolar transition that just really f fucks you up. Everybody who goes through a war zone comes home and at least for a time they're disturbed. A uh, car's tailpipe might set you off. Uh, you might be jittery when you're in a crowd. If you don't have these symptoms you're crazy. You're a sociopath. There's no other way to describe it. <laughs> Having a heightened sense of being able to transition quickly from placid, calm, confident to a professional killer instinct at a snap protects you. It's a good skill, but it's hard to unlearn. It's hard to come home and be calm and poised and not equate everything to life or death. It's hard to come home and sit with your back to a wall at a restaurant not looking who's coming in, who's going out. But that high you get, that rock-solid hard-on from coming home and being alive is unlike anything I could ever describe. <laughs> but it doesn't last long because people don't understand where you've come from. They won't take the time to consider what you've done. They treat it like this sacred saint, unapproachable experience, and uh, nobody calls you out for drinking too much. Nobody calls you out for being angry and irritable. Nobody calls you out for your violent mood swings that once protected you and now they, now they make you a social pariah. When I was overseas, I, I was in love. I had met somebody before I left. Even though I served in combat, even though I did two tours, I was a Marine Reservist. 
which meant I was basically a civilian college student and also a warfighter at the same time. I'd go from Chile's to places like Fallujah. Uh, I'd go from the Syrian border of Iraq to a community college. I met a young woman before I left. She was a hostess at the restaurant where I worked at. She was sweet. She'd always give me the good tables, even though I didn't ask, you know, or the people she followed would tip really well. We would get food to go. We'd go back to my house. And I was 19, so I'd put on some jazz music and a candle, and I thought that was romantic. And uh, she would brush her teeth when we were done, which I just felt was so cool, just so honest, so open. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Let's go mess around. Like, okay, shit. <laughs> I'm done with that. Spent my entire last day with her. She came with me on all my errands, all my activities. A lot of that meant her sitting in a car on a military base, just waiting for me to get gear, receive gear, collect stuff. And um, I held her. I held her that night. And that was it. There's not a lot to say, but I did tell her that uh, she should live her life and uh, forget about me. But she didn't. She reached out to my sister, who she found online, and got my address before anybody else got my address somehow. And she wrote me every single day. And she marked the envelopes with lipstick. She drew me paintings of marine dress uniforms and swords. And then she would always sign her name with the nickname I gave her, Cinnamon Girl. Which I thought was pretty smart, right? I used to be a drummer back then. She used to love that I drummed. And uh, there's a lyric in the song. The drummer relaxes and waits between shows for his cinnamon girl. So I wanted to be with her more than anything. But sometimes I would say, hey, let's go out as friends. I would push her away. Uh, flipping from I love you, I, let's talk about our future one day, to not talking to her for days. Um, to not wanting to hang out with her family. Uh, her sister was dating a Marine at the time. And uh, I don't know why, I just didn't want to be around another Marine. I didn't want to hang out with her family and him. Um, you know, uh, a symptom of PTSD is avoidance. Not wanting to be around things that remind you of um, bad experiences. I didn't know what, how to explain it, but I knew I was not right. I knew that I felt off. And again, I didn't want to involve her in that part of my life. I slowly began drinking a lot. I slowly began giving less of a shit. And I slowly found myself being angry, unable to control my emotions, and just oscillating between extremes, just total jubilation to depression. Uh, I found out about a month after I came home, one of the Marines I served with who stayed behind was killed by a suicide bomber. I threw my phone against the wall, exploding the parts. Another one of my friends was killed later, my friend Mike. His helicopter crashed. Last time I saw him, he just finished infantry training. And uh, I traced my finger on his PFC mark. It's a chevron that goes on the shoulder. And I was proud of him. His funeral was a closed casket funeral. And uh, me and a friend of his, 
We just drank, we just drank a lot. One late night, shitty night like any other. A lot of Red Bulls and vodkas. Heart racing, mind racing. I like that drink because it just made me feel really fucked up. And I saw a photo of her. She's a photographer. She's well versed in Photoshop. So it's stunning, it's, it's beautiful. All blemishes removed. Her eyes, her blue eyes, accented. And her hair. Really red hair. Really red, bold, scarlet hair. When I had come home originally, she had dyed her hair back to blonde. And after we broke up, she kept it that way. And that was red again. I felt like she did it because she knew I'd see it. She knew it was a way to passive-aggressively give me a finger. Fuck you, dude. I just wanted things to be right. I wanted things to be back to normal. Because everything sucks. And I struggle through my day-to-day. But this is the one thing that I think could be a savior. Could get me right again. Could make me feel like I used to feel. She wouldn't give me that, but I, I, I didn't deserve it because I was the one who had fucked shit up. And I felt about my daily depression, drinking so much, trying not to wake up, but somehow always being there. And the following day, putting whatever fragments of myself I had together to go to a restaurant to smile, to be polite. Hey chief, will you get me a Coke? Fuck yourself, I'm not a chief. I'm a Lance Corporal in the Marines, don't patronize me. And they would always play our song on the rafters. Cinnamon Girl, every night. I get in fights with my coworkers, and I'd be put in the office a lot. The only reason I had a job is because they took pity on me. The young crazy vet, just come home. We'd go out and we'd drink again and I would drink and I did not want to think about her. But I would only talk to the girls who reminded me of her, the ones that looked like her. Because that was my marker. It was my market at home, and she didn't want me, and I did not, I did not see a redemption anymore. I bought a rifle, and I bought one bullet, but I knew that bullet was never for home defense. It was for me. And I closed the door to my room, and I sat on my bed, and I loaded a round into the chamber. And I stared. And your bones feel hard and numb. 
and time felt like it was not moving at all. But all I could see at the end of the barrel was my mom, my mom's face. And I thought about what she would look like at my funeral. <laughs> she used to say, Dario, if you ever get captured, I'm, I'm gonna come over there and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go rescue you. <laughs> She's old and like four foot 11. What a ridiculous thing to say. And she said, we would get you, we would get you back. If you died, I'm gonna bury you with a sword. I wasn't a corporal, I didn't raid a sword, but she wanted to give me a sword because she was proud of me. I saw Mike's mom at his funeral, and I, I, I didn't know her, I had never met her before that day. And it's cliche, but they say the eyes are a window to the soul, and when you look into the eyes of a mother who has just lost her son, there is a vacancy that is painful to look at. And because that darkness, I don't feel is ever going to be replaced, because why should it? What an awful, awful experience. There's no lesson in that. There's no go live your life better. There's no keep doing the mission to honor him. And I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it to my mom. I still wanted to die, but I wasn't going to do it myself, so I volunteered for war again. And even though I was not making out with anybody, I got sick with mono. And, uh... You can't go fight a war with mono because you're fatigued and you can't stay focused and your spleen can explode. I swear to you, if I had a broken leg, I would have gone. If I had pneumonia, I would have gone. I was suicidal, but I didn't want to get anybody else killed. So uh, I stayed behind. the guys who went in my stead um, got really fucked up. <laughs> One of them lost a leg. One of them wound up dying later, got shot in the neck. Our officer in charge got shot in the face. Somebody hit him in the small space between the helmet and the neck guard of a flak vest rupturing the front of his face, destroying his jaw. I saw him at a military hospital on the Marine Corps birthday. He didn't have a face, it was just a tongue. And his sister would dutifully suction every so often, and he would write with a pen and paper, this place is busy. some point I just got tired of feeling like shit feeling awful feeling suffocated by depression by sadness by this inability to 
reclaim my life, get back to who I thought I could be, maybe become who I wanted to be. I realized at some point you just got to unfuck yourself. So I went to college in Connecticut, having not known anybody in Connecticut, and uh, thankfully I found some people who encouraged me to write, and I started writing. And uh, I've learned you have to control your story or your story controls you. I still keep the bullet. It's in a jar of things that make up my life. And there is keepsakes from every job I've ever worked. A note a girl gave me in high school. She wrote, keep this forever, so I did. My old class rang. My old dog tags wrapped around tape so they didn't clink together while on patrol. A map of the Appalachian Trail. Other secret things. I want to show this jar to the woman that I will marry one day. I will want to show her how important my life is when measured against the bullet. People might not challenge you. They'll say, oh, he's been to war. They've done tough stuff. But you still got to make that choice for you. Because if you find yourself like I did, staring down a barrel, that's not good for you or anybody else. Because if you kill yourself at home, it still counts for the enemy. It's a 6,000 mile sniper shot. The difference is it came from your own gun. This is Risk. This is Kate Bush behind me now. And we just heard from Dario De Batista. Like I said before, his book, Retire the Colors, with various stories from veterans and the loved ones of veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, filled with beautiful, fascinating, and extraordinary stories like that one. You can also find Dario on Twitter at Dario Di Battista. And if you'd like to learn more about suicide prevention and PTSD, you can go right to the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs at mentalhealth.va.gov.
And on the subject of mental health, if you've ever thought about going into therapy but, you know, found it too inconvenient or too expensive or, I don't know, maybe you're too embarrassed to make it into an office building, you might try Talkspace. Talkspace is the online therapy company, and they make it easy to connect with a licensed therapist, handpicked just for you, for as little as $32 a week, Using Talkspace, you can text, audio, and video message your therapist as much as you want. Your Talkspace therapist can listen to you vent about work or family, explore your relationships, uh, help put you on the path to a happier life. To sign up to learn more, go to Talkspace.com risk. And as a special offer to our listeners, you can use the coupon code RISK to get $30 off your first month and show your support for the podcast. Talkspace, therapy for how we live today. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from a young man who shared with us at our last show in Baltimore, a show we did in Baltimore a few months back. It was really funny because... He shared the story with us a couple of times before we did the show, but I didn't anticipate how funny it was going to be. You know, there's some stories are a mixture of sad and funny and scary. It's always interesting to see how they actually turn out when you put them on their feet. So here he is now. This is Ian Steffi at the Risk Live show in Baltimore with a story we call The Deer Hunter. story is about a relationship between me and my father. So when I was 10 years old, I was awakened from a very deep sleep. It was early fall. And I felt a hand on my ankle shaking me awake. And I opened my eyes and my father was standing at the foot of my bed. It was four o'clock in the morning. The light was coming in through the window and he was standing there in a sleeveless t-shirt with a red bandana wrapped around his face. He had uh, blue jeans on, knee-high boots, and a bow strapped to his back, and a tomahawk at his belt. And he's just like in a Jack Palance whisper, he's like, wake up. <laughs> like, 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 like Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, it's a very jarring image. Wake, wake up. What's up, Dad? We're going tracking for deer in the woods. And he stormed out of the room. He would have looked like the perfect North Dakota militia man, except... He had these very soft, feminine features and high cheekbones. So he looked like Barishnikov. Very jarring combination. Walks out of the room. I didn't ask any questions. I, I just grabbed my own clothes. I was like, how am I going to look like a mountain man too? And I dug through my clothes and I had nothing left. I was on the receipt tape of what I had left. So I just picked up a pair of dress pants and, and a Grinch t-shirt that was too tight. <laughs> And then I, I went in the car with him and we drove to the woods. Now, the reason why we got to this point, the two of us 
in our family tree. It's a gnarled family tree. It's like a bush. It's a, it's a gnarled fist of mental illness. <laughs> Thank you for that one woo. <laughs> uh, but the reason why this happened is because my father was a very intimidating figure in my life. Not in a bad way. He wasn't a physically abusive person or anything. He was just a very unusual, ultra-masculine man. Your father might have played guitar in the garage and dreamt about being in a band or could fix the Camaro quite well or something like that. My, my father in the 1970s, when I say he looked like Barishnikov, he was a model in the 1970s. He looked so much like Barishnikov, they took pictures of him with his fingers steepled and his beautiful hair in his face, and they'd put it in lookalike magazines. I guess they had magazines devoted to people who looked like Milton Berle and shit, and he was in it. <laughs> so that's one element. When he was in his teens, he was adopted by a Native American tribe, all right? <laughs> That's just a thing. Like, some people played football, and he learned lazy stitch enough to be adopted into a tribe. And then the third thing, the big thing, the one that, like, he's most famous for, is my father was a ghost hunter in the 1980s. <laughs> all right, it's not like a, he's just, like, a fat guy who's nervous with an infrared camera, like... Like, he's doing it. Like, he has all the equipment. He's taking pictures of all the haunted places in the world. It was amazing. Because when you watch shows about this kind of thing, it's usually, like, orbs. Like, you see little circles of light. He used to get, like, bouquets of flowers. Or he would have a man on horseback on a roof on fire. Those were his photographs. So when I was a kid, what was common was there would be phone calls from different television shows to my house. So we would have like people like from Sightings and Unsolved Mysteries. At one point, Dan Aykroyd called our house personally to talk to my father, this urban legend. So Dan Aykroyd calls, and my mom and me and my sister are all huddled in the kitchen, and my father's on the phone talking to Aykroyd and just nodding and saying, uh-huh, yeah. And then after it was all done, because he was working on this show in Canada, uh, my father was like... Um, yeah, he was just crazy. That was, that was all he said to my mom and us, because he's crazy. He's the one breaking into mental institutions and cemeteries, but Dan Aykroyd, the accomplished actor and filmmaker, is crazy. Now, when you have this weird magnetic poetry of a person raising you, it's hard to acclimate. I wasn't a normal kid. I wasn't, though. I wasn't, I wasn't a normal kid by a long shot. Like, my parents were very, very protective of me as a kid. So, like, they worked multiple jobs, but they were afraid because, like, in the 80s, there was this big epidemic, apparently, of kindergartens that, like, kids would be possessed by the devil or something. I don't know. I read articles about this witch hysteria that happened in the 80s. I, I would like to think that's why I was kept away from other children because they were worried that I would also become possessed by the devil or something. But instead, I would go to Catholic school and I would go home. I didn't hang out with any other friends because they were worried about what would happen to me and they were working all these jobs. So, like, they tried to get me involved in things with other kids, like the normals, and it didn't work out. Like, they tried to get me into baseball and they would stick me in right field, which is where they stuck all the freaks. <laughs> so rather than catching the ball, I would just pick dandelions and then throw the ball like somebody that was trying to swat a bee out of their face. <laughs> So that didn't work. So uh, alone in the house, I, I came up with my own things. I remember once I had heard somebody say the phrase, he sold his soul to the devil. And I wondered about that. So I remember my dad had walked out to me at, by the swing set, which is the scariest part of my yard. 
It was very rusty. No one ever swung on the swing. It was underneath the swing set. And I remember going, devil. Like, I was trying to talk to the devil. Now, I didn't want to sell my soul to the devil. I just wanted an estimate. My father walked in on this. of just me going, like, devil! And he's nothing. Another thing that I was really fixated on was the Guinness Book of World Records. I'm sure you guys read those when you were a kid. It was the big, thick paperback volumes, like the 1998, sorry, 88, where you'd get, like, the world's largest set of twins. It'd be, like, these morbidly obese guys on little tricycles and the hats. And I'd be like, that's very specific record. Uh, I think I can get in there. So I would walk around my house making up sentences in the English language. It'd be like, you can't get on this bus, you golden retriever. You're paying with cream cheese. Because, all right, that sentence doesn't make sense. But out of the billions and billions and billions of people that ever lived in the world, I was the first person that had combined those words into a sentence. (laughs) Ever. You know? Like, I would just be like, fill me with wax, it's time for the auction. Another fucking record. (laughs) So there was concerns. There's so many concerns about me... So I'm going to the woods with my father. It just like he had taken the time out of his day. I remember there was a fight between him and my mom the night before because he had walked in on me singing the Lion King soundtrack in a hairbrush just while dancing up and down on the bed. And there was a fight. And I, I remember being very creepy at the top of the staircase because it was like liar, liar, where I was just like, oh, yeah, he's going to get that moment where he has to raise me finally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, keep fighting him, mom. Like, yeah. And so like we went to the woods there was concerns. So we drove. It was the early morning. We're watching the sun rising up over the horizon and on the highway. We're listening to his Roxy music tapes. And it's just mostly silence because we have nothing to relate to because he takes pictures of the devil and uh, I, I, I have very small wrists. <laughs> what do we talk about? So finally, like after about two hours of driving, we stop at a gas station and he flings a bag of jerky made of deer meat at my face. And he's like, eat that. And, and we start driving again. And he's like, son, I want to tell you something. There's something I need you to know. And I was like, this is it. This is going to be the knowledge that stops me from getting beaten up. <laughs> tell me your advice, you piercing blue-eyed, beautiful man. Tell me something. Tell me, tell me how to get through this. And he goes, uh, all right, so um, I'm just going to lay this out. Some men are leg men, Okay. Um, some men are ass men. Still, some are tit men. Now, when it comes to what I find most attractive about your mother, this is the sex talk. He's starting cold. Here. Where we are. And I'm panicked. There's nothing I've heard. Tits. Mom. Mom. No, no, no. And so, like, the only thing I can do to defend myself is remembering that for the 4th of July weekend, we had HBO for free. So, like, I was like, I've seen R-rated movies, so you can stop. No. Which at the time, I, like, what my idea of sex was, was just kind of mushing. It was smushing it together. <laughs> but it's better than my mom and tits in the sentence. And that, he looked at me quizzically, and, and so, like, there's silence for another 10 minutes, and he goes... Look, just, um, just don't have sex too young because you'll get bored with it later. <laughs> All right, I'll bite. 
<laughs> All right. He becomes less about giving me advice about manhood, and now I'm starting to realize he's just venting about how much his marriage sucks. It's me in the car. So we continue driving in silence, not relating to each other, and we finally get to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. We get out of the car, and the very first thing he does in his Rambo gear and me in my Grinch t-shirt that's too tight is he hands me a Bowie knife with my initials in it. Like, I looked at the handle and said, I-M-S. There's your Bowie knife. And he looked at me like, huh? Eh? That's all yours. And I was like... So I just start, like, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing this with. I started, like, kind of swashbuckling with it. Uh, he took it away, like, immediately. No more knife for you. So, like, this whole trip was supposed to be geared towards manhood and all this, like, try to fix this fey behavior. So we start tracking deer. So my perspective of what tracking deer is, is that we're going to walk through the woods and, like, something's going to happen where, like, a bear's going to jump out and hit him. And he's going to get that cool, like, Bruce Willis blood down the corner of the mouth and the temple thing. And I'm going to go, no, not today. And I kill the bear. Kill it. I kill him. I kill it. I imagine the bear is people I don't like it. You fuck you, Bobby, you Benita. Like, yeah. He'd be like, thanks for watching my six. And I'd be like, yeah, thumbs up. That doesn't happen. Instead, we're walking through the woods. He says, don't trudge around like a white man. We're both white. We don't trudge around like that. We're, we're just stomping through the woods. But he, he stops at every three footsteps. So it's one Two, three. Because an animal walks that way. We're two guys in the woods, but apparently the way we walk affects whether or not a deer is going to think man or deer. So we walk three footsteps. One, two, three. And we do this for hours. One, two, three. Why can't my father learn guitar? One, two, three. It's, it's September now, and I've been talking about this since June. Why aren't we working on my Halloween costume? One, Two, three. And what's the deal with him and Star Wars and all that? I think Teen Witch is better. One, two, three. Nothing is rubbing off on me. He's not telling me anything that's worth it. Like, oh, if you look at the tree bark there, the deer scratched his head there. Isn't that neat? And I'm like, ah, fuck off. (laughs) So finally, after a few miles, we get into, like, there's this tree falling in the middle of the woods. It's a big birch tree. And he sees it, and there's this flap of paper. Like, it's... This, it's like poster-sized of this flap of birch bark. He's like, I can make something out of that because the Native American thing, you can make anything, whatever. And so he goes towards the tree and he's trying to remove the bark. He can't pull it off. So he positions his knee underneath the bark of the tree just like that to brace it. And then he takes the tomahawk out of his belt and starts trying to remove it. One, two, three. <laughs> This is finally the moment where I'm just like, Dad, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. He keeps slashing. One, two, three. And then before I can really stop him, the tomahawk plunges through the bark and goes straight into his kneecap. Oh, yeah. No, it's not like a little cut. It's like full force. All of his shoulder went into that bark. The sound of chickens separating is particularly apt. So we're in a pickle. Because the only person that can help him in like a 50-mile radius is wearing a Grinch t-shirt that's too tight. <laughs> I don't remember a lot of how we got to the road. It was several miles. I would say that I was probably in shock. He tied a tourniquet and did the best he could to keep me safe and sound and, and calm. And we kept walking. And he was using his bow as a cane. He kept 
falling down, blood's going everywhere. After hours of this, we get to the road, and the car's not there. We have completely gone off course. So we're on the road, and we're forced to hitchhike. I had to do it, because he can't stand on his own, so I'm standing there with my father's Grinch t-shirt. <laughs> and finally, a Suburban pulls up, and it's hunters who have successfully killed a deer. It's on the, back, it's on the top of the, like this dead deer and they pull over like oh my god are you all right and my father's like yeah it's an interesting story you know um you know i thought my son was gay so i brought him to the woods to teach him how to be a man again i thought that sex was genitals just smushing i don't know so it immediately went from being concerned to being a bernie mac roast all the way to the car it's like you thought that was gonna work and like we finally get to the car. We get in the car. We start driving down the mountain. My father's got blood all over the car. It's gushing out. He doesn't think to shut off the stereo. So the whole time while we're going down and I'm panicking and he's blood on all over the speedometer, you hear Phil Collins, easy lover, she got a hold on you, believe it. Haunt me for the rest of my life. We got to the base of the mountain. The mountain has like a little street thing, like the very end of the mountain. There's a gas station on one side with some Stephen King, New Hampshire guy in a rocking chair doing the full service. And the hospital's on the other corner. So Pops decides to fill up the gas tank instead. (laughs) Guy's fucking shaking. My father is just like, well, super. My son's childhood's fucked. We get to the hospital and nurses are working on my father. They're pulling his jeans apart. One nurse doesn't seem to be very good at her job. Jaded, maybe an 18-hour shift, shoves her fingers in the wound like a doubting Thomas. (laughs) And he's gripping the sides of the gurney and he says, "Uh, I just wanted to teach you something. And he gave me his wallet with his ID and his money in it. And I, I remember walking, like there was supposed to be somebody there to escort me, but I was just walking down the hallway alone. My father being worked on, I have all these concerns about him. I was like, what did he really teach me? <laughs> walking down this hallway. This is supposed to be the stand by me moment. Well, <laughs> his father, what happened to him? My father on his own. I start to have this context start to change in my head. He's a human being. He's not so much of a folk hero anymore. He's not adopted by Native Americans. He's a kid in New Mexico who likes to hang out in a craft store. He's not so much Barishnikov, is he? He's just a guy who looks like him. And the only thing I could get from that was that mixed with my mom's genes, I would look like Oscar Wilde. I mean, ultimately, whatever could have been learned from this story, I was destined to be the same thing as him. Neglected a little, not really. But I would find myself. But I will tell you this. Holding that wallet, going to the cafeteria alone, I took out a 20 spot and threw it in the vending machine. And I took out 20 bags of Cheetos. (laughs) Laid them out on a cafeteria table. And I proceeded to open each one and eat them. Because, as I'd like to submit to you, I ate the most Cheetos while wearing a Grinch t-shirt that was too tight while covered in their father's blood. Eat your heart out, Guinness Book of World Records. Thanks a lot, guys. You have a good night.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Air Traffic Controller behind me now, and we just heard from Ian Steffi. Now, don't forget, the Risk Patreon page is now live online. If you go to patreon.com slash risk, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash risk, It would mean so very much to us. And listen, you have an opportunity to get access to patron-only content, things like the Risk All-Star episodes, ad-free versions of Risk Season 1 and Season 2. You could get great rewards like storytelling classes or shout-outs from me or personalized songs. Even if it's just for $5 a month. If most of our fans donated $5 a month, we would be in such a beautiful place financially and would be able to do so many more wonderful things. So don't forget, there's a ton of people doing lots of work on this show and the various other projects we have and doing it for peanuts. JC often says, maybe one day we'll be able to get it so that me, Kevin Allison, I'm not living paycheck to paycheck and actually have some sort of savings and can do things like, you know, Go to the dentist. So support us at patreon.com slash risk. Also, support for risk comes from Talkspace, the online therapy company that believes that therapy should be affordable, confidential, and convenient. Join over 500,000 people who have used Talkspace for online therapy with their licensed therapist. For a special offer, visit Talkspace.com slash risk. Again, that's T-A-L-K-S-P-A-C-E dot com slash risk. Now, here is the big list of where we're coming next. On January 18th, we are in Austin, Texas. On January 19th, we're in Houston. And on January 20th, we're in Dallas. Go to risk-show.com slash tour to find out more about those dates. On January 21st, we're in Los Angeles, California at the Bootleg Theater. That is our monthly show there. And on the 25th, we're at the Bell House in New York. Phoebe Robinson from uh, Two Dope Queens will be there in New York. On January 27th, we'll be at the Swedish American Hall in San Francisco. January 27th, San Francisco. On February 17th, we're in Carborough, North Carolina. We're still taking pitches for that one. The theme is what? And you can pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I think you can make
I wasn't a normal kid. I wasn't, though. I wasn't, though. I want it